It's go time. Great Cup 109 is in the books, and it's going to go down as one of the classics, as that fourth quarter provided just about everything you could ever ask of a football game. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. Game is over. We have a champion. The Toronto Argonauts again find a way to win in the Grey Cup as they've done every time since 1987. That is an amazing run rate that they have of victories. And they were full marks for what they did on the field. Biggest takeaways from that game. Uh, now seven-game Grey Cup win streak for the Toronto Argonauts. Congratulations to them and their fans. It was a, a hard-fought battle. Winnipeg probably had the worst timing to have their offensive line underperform. At the end of the day, the running game, they had about 100 yards rushing combined for those Winnipeg Blue Bombers. They gave up four sacks, and it was not the performance that you expect to see out of that lineup. And I believe that is a big part of what cost them in the long run. For me, I mean, I think most people expected Winnipeg would come out and play better than they did. They didn't play as we expected, but at the same point, that is why you have a championship game. You you have to win that game that matters. And in this case, they weren't able to pull it out, although they had plenty of opportunity. Um, to me, I was impressed by both teams' defenses. The offenses at times struggled, but I thought the defenses really stepped up in this game. You could argue that the defenses did that, but I will argue too that the offenses also created their own problems. Drop balls all over the place. Curly Gittins Jr., two easy catches went through his hands. Tavares Daniels dropped one. Dalton Schoen dropped a deep pass. It was time and time and time again where the receivers were not supporting their quarterbacks. And then on the other side, McLeod Bethel-Thompson was overthrowing receivers, seemed to be miscommunication, and Zach Kolaris didn't look like Zach Kolaris. He was throwing balls short. Do you not feel that some of that was due to defensive pressure or due to the fact that uh, they were covered well? When I think of Schoen's pass, he had Mechie right beside him. You know, like that to me is a good defensive play. Yes, he dropped the ball. It was potentially catchable, but they're tight and they're providing pressure. And to me, that was the difference. You're not supposed to be focusing on who's covering you. You're supposed to be focusing on the ball as it comes to you. And Schoen had it in both of his hands, and he dropped it, plain and simple. Mechie did a great job of keeping up with him, yes, but did he break up the play? No, and Milt Stiegel at halftime said that was a catchable ball. There's no reason why he didn't, but he didn't. There, There was a lot of offense that was left off the score sheet because teams were struggling to hang on to the football. And when you go two and out as many times as the Blue Bombers did in the first half or the Argos did latter in that first half, you're not doing much. Does it necessarily mean that the defense is dominating? Perhaps. Certainly Jackson Jeffcoat in that first half was a monster for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. After that, where do you look at? Because Typically, if McLeod Bethel-Thompson was finding pressure in his face, it was because Winnipeg was blitzing. The Argonauts only blitzed in the second half. So in that first half, when the stats were so low, 
you have to give some credit to the defensive lines. As you mentioned, Jackson Jeffcoat had an outstanding first half. Willie Jefferson had a couple of knockdowns. Sean Oakman for the Toronto Argonauts was wreaking havoc all day as well. So those defensive lines had a better day than the offensive lines. And and that was a real difference maker. To a point, it, it certainly did. But both teams would rush for 100 yards. And there was all over 700 yards of offense at the end of the day. Defenses, yes, they they made plays when they had to. This was a hallmark of the Toronto Argonauts all season long. They were the team that could get the the turnover when they needed it, and they they were the champions of that sort of stat. They weren't the best in terms of stopping the run, stopping the pass. They were way down, eighth overall probably, but they knew how to make things happen when they needed to on defense. And, I mean, look at the story that Robbie Smith has. He has an offside penalty, an illegal block penalty, a face mask penalty, yet he has a massive sack and the field goal block at the end of the game. Up, down, you couldn't have scripted it any wilder. You couldn't. And one hallmark for both of these defenses is keeping the other team out of the end zone. We've seen Winnipeg over the course of their run over the last couple of seasons as well. They're not afraid to give up yards. They they shut down once the ball gets into the red zone generally, and one of their strongest points has been shutting down the opposition in the fourth quarter. They failed to do so in this game, and that came back to haunt them. Another area that came back to haunt and the fact that they weren't able to convert was the, the kickers on both teams struggled and definitely played into the outcome of this game. There's been a lot of finger pointing from Winnipeg fans about the performance of Mark Leggio in this one, having missed a convert and having a field goal blocked. But you look at the reverse and Boris Beattie missed two field goals, one of which did go through the end zone for a single. He also had a field goal blocked. So it's easy to look at that one point and blame the kicker on the missed convert. But there was a lot of players that did not do their jobs to the best of their ability for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I I don't like the fact that fans have taken it out on one individual player when you could go up and down that roster and find misplays that led to points for Toronto or a lack of points for Winnipeg. Even if, if Boris Beattie had made those two field goals that you speak of, five points could have made a big difference in this game. Very true. The Boris Beattie missed three. He got one single out of it. He had a return against one of his. That was at the end of the half. And, of course, there was the blocked one in the final three minutes. Nick Hallett did something amazing by coming around the end and getting in front of that kick. That, in an emotional roller coaster, sent Bomber fans through the roof, Argo fans into the abyss almost, not knowing what would happen next. And then... Of course, Winnipeg gets that big pass to Ellingson, and suddenly what was out of reach is now in reach, and then we can get into the conjecture. All night long, we could see that the kickers were struggling with the wind. The wind was coming out of the west and then the northwest, which means it was slamming into the stadium and spinning around. And Boris Beatty was flummoxed by it time and again because he would aim down the middle and it would drift to the right. He'd aim to the left and it would stay left. It just, it depended on how the gust was working. At the end of the game, 
Leggio is there to, from 47 yards out to kick the game winner. Robbie Smith gets through the line, gets a hand on it. The ball is tipped, and the Argos win the Grey Cup. Looking from the low-end camera, I'm not sure that Leggio didn't do what he did against Montreal early in the season. At the end of the game, he drilled it straight to the left. Missed that kick by a large margin. Could you tell that from that low angle that that ball probably wasn't going to make it anyway? Not to take anything from what Smith did. It's hard to say, and it is speculation at this point. Mark Leggio said he believed it was going in. I don't know if that's just a, a kicker trying to maintain some dignity and, and thinking that had it not been blocked, it would have been the game-winning kick, or if there was more to it. But you can look at angles. There's also the the spin of the ball. There's also the wind that's a factor. So we, we don't know at this point. It, it certainly looked from the, the angle of where the block came into play that it was going left. Toronto did what they needed to do. It did appear that it's going left when Robbie Smith steps between the guard and the tackle to come in and make the block and didn't seem to go hard left towards the center to make it. To me, this kick was starting out much like Boris Beattie's kick that went, as you said, Don, to the left and stayed left. Now, given the wind, it's potential that it could have hooked off to the right like some of the other balls did, and it's hard to say. At the end of the day, 47 yards is not an easy field goal for any kicker to make. We, we can guess about what if, but at the end of the day, Robbie Smith stepped up and made a play when it needed to be made, which solidified it, which, as you said, Don, is just a great story. And the fact that he was so dominant in the final two sacks gets called on a face mask. So Winnipeg gets another chance. And I think most of us thought at that point that we're going to see Winnipeg do what Winnipeg traditionally does and bounce back, particularly when the pass to Greg Ellingson moves them down the field into range with plenty of time left for a few more first downs. But then Toronto's defense stepped up once again and stopped it, forcing a 47-yard field goal attempt. Robbie Smith could have been outstanding Canadian and outstanding player in this football game had it not been, I think, for the penalties, and especially the face mask. The illegal block took away a huge punt return. The offside was negligible, but the face mask on the third down that would have may not have clinched it for the Argos, but certainly would have put them in the huge advantage. That hurt a lot. And it was sort of the same thing that happened to Michael Moore for the Alouettes against the Argos the week before, where he just reaches out and grabs the grill, realizes it, let's go, too late. The flag is coming. Yeah, it's a great call by the official. It's, it's a tough call to make because it does impact the game potentially, but it's the right call and it needs to be made. There's nothing wrong with the call. It was completely correct. It's just so hard at that time of the game for the team who is called against to look at the official and go, oh no. And Robbie Smith never disputed it. He he said he did it. He didn't mean to, but he did it and it was caught. The 15 yards, of course, put the Bombers into that first down after being in so much trouble on third down. Don, I'm going to throw some interesting stats at you because I know you're a, a stat guru. Comparing this Grey Cup matchup to the 2019 Grey Cup matchup, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers go into this one 15-3. and three. The 2019 Hamilton Tiger Cats went into the Grey Cup 15-3. and three. The Bombers that year were 11-7. and seven. This year the Argos, Argonauts 11-7. and seven. Hamilton went into 2019 Grey Cup having won four of the major awards, including Coach of the Year, Most Outstanding Player, 
and outstanding linemen. This year, Winnipeg goes into the Grey Cup with the outstanding coach, outstanding player, outstanding lineman. As we alluded to at the end of last week's podcast, there's a reason you play the game. You can look at this on paper. And Winnipeg rightfully earned the distinction of being the favorite going into this game. But when it comes down to it and they get in between those sidelines and the ball's in play, anything can happen. This upset, I think, ranks as big as the Argonauts upset over the Stampeders in 2017. Ricky Ray and Devere Posey hook up for a 100-yard touchdown pass, and a fumble by Kamar Jordan goes 105 the other way, and the Argos, on those two momentous plays and some other great defense and offense, managed to squeak it out over the Stampeders with a final interception in the end zone. Another aspect that that stood out for me in this game was the special team play. We know that you have to execute in all three facets of the game, and and the special teams certainly came into this game with Janarian Grant having a record return of 102 yards. At that point, I'm thinking, okay, Winnipeg's done well because to that point, I, I honestly thought that Toronto's special teams had won the balance of the game as compared to Winnipeg's special teams. They seemed to be gaining yards on every possession turnover the, the punting with legio was not as strong as it was with Haggerty. They, they to me were were tilting the field until that point and yet at the end you see the punt returns coming back from toronto you've got an opportunity for javon leak who really stepped it up and was able to make one or two players miss and get around the corner a few times and and to me at the end of the day toronto ends up winning that battle Haggerty. Outpunted Legio by an average of 10 yards per punt. That's a significant stat. And you're right, Javon Leak, six returns for 116. Janarian Grant, if you take out the 102 yard return for the touchdown, the remainder is five returns for 50 yards. So Leak wins that battle, but for one play. The weather actually outperformed what the forecast was indicating. Other than the wind, which really died down by the time the fourth quarter had come around. It was a pleasant-ish night for late November. One of these days, the CFL, this is an aside, but they've got to quit playing these games so late in November. And here's a thought, just to put it in your minds. Which would you rather lose on a revenue date? A game at the end of April, opening the season, or maybe a preseason game, or maybe an opening the season, as I suggest, or the Grey Cup. Take your pick. Because if you start finishing the Grey Cup in October or first week in November, you're not worrying so much about what the weather is going to do to you. Take your take your lumps in the spring if you have to, but protect your playoffs. In the prairies, anytime after about the middle of October, you are flirting with some weather unpredictability. Randy Ambrosi was asked about this a little bit during this week, past week as well. And he mentioned that two weeks ago in Regina, you had close to minus 30 wind chills. That shouldn't be the reason to leave the Grey Cup game where it is towards the end of November. It was a bit of an anomaly to be that cold that early in November in Regina. So generally, you're going to trend towards better weather if we can move it earlier by a couple of weeks. And there was also some talk about how a 10th team will affect that as well because as it stands right now, every week somebody has to be on a buy. Once you've got an even number of teams, that's no longer the case and you can tweak the schedule 
and, and shorten the number of weeks in the season. You can also cut down the weeks off from three to two and shorten the schedule that way. If you cut the schedule by about three weeks, you're right at the beginning of November, the end of October to finish the season. Your odds of hitting minus 20, minus 10, even minus five just are so low. By comparison, if you go into late November and especially in the West, they got lucky that it was only minus two at kickoff. The CFL has been lucky in in a number of occasions where the temperature really doesn't impact the game as much as it potentially could. This one, you're right, Don. I did feel the wind definitely impacted not only us, who we were all in attendance at this great cup, uh, you could feel it in the stands, but the players, you could tell that they were, they were cold coming off the field, and particularly those who were off on the sideline for a period of time. The heaters seemed to work, and you could watch the players gather by the heaters because they were feeling it. And why do we insist on having our championship game being a question of who can withstand the cold? It just doesn't make any sense to me. The game is about the two best teams going at it with great conditions so that those aren't the factor that the team's play is. And I just, I don't understand this logic. I really don't. Where cold weather in the Grey Cup is a wonderful thing. For whom? I would love to know. And when the weather turns bad in the playoff games, it affects the stars of the game. Luck becomes a lot more of a factor than skill as well. We've seen icy, slippery conditions before, and it's the team that has the best training and equipment staff that can figure out the traction that ends up winning the game. It doesn't necessarily show the skills of the players on the field, running, passing, kicking, etc. It's a matter of who found the grip, and that shouldn't be the way to determine a game. We've seen famously mud bowls, ice bowls, fog bowls, a lot of snowy conditions, and the better the weather can be, the better the product on the field. Where would you rather have a smaller attendance because of the cold, at the beginning of the season or at the end of the season? Now, the game did sell out, although not every seat was occupied. And the other thing, too, we have to remember, the way people consume games is vastly different. A lot more people hanging out on the concourse. There are television screens there to watch the game. It's a more of a social atmosphere. If you watch at points in the first quarter, the stadium looks far more full than it will at any other point in the game. It's interesting when you watch on camera and you see the empty seats. I agree with you, Don. I think if you're there and you step out, which I did right before the game to go to the washroom right around the O Canada time, the concourse was actually packed with people. So if those people are in their seats, it's going to make a bit of a difference. And and I think you've got a different generation that, that uh, interacts with the game by social media. They, they do like to get into the concessions. And, and to be honest, the Mosaic Stadium has outstanding concessions. So people hang out there. You can watch a television and see the game on the television as you're in there. So for some people, it's a case of getting out of the wind. So, you know, disappointing to not have everyone in their seats. But at the same point, those that were there, some of them choose to stay in the concourse for a period of time. It didn't feel like a smaller crowd by any means either. I've been to a lot of games at Mosaic, as you both have been to many more than myself. But a sold-out Labor Day game 
doesn't feel much different than this Grey Cup as far as the number of people milling around, the ambiance in the stadium. The crowd noise was a little bit different given there was no true home team. The Rough Rider fans, I have to say, were very evenly split between cheering for the West no matter who it is and cheering against the arch-rival Winnipeg Blue Bombers. So it was it was a, a fun atmosphere to be a part of. A, a great job by the city of Regina and the organizing committee. It was a, a fantastic event throughout the entire week. Second down. The Toronto Argonauts win 24-23 on a huge fourth quarter where they score 10 points and defeat the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, the two-time defending Grey Cup champions. McLeod Bethel-Thompson gets the start for the Toronto Argonauts. He goes 15 of 28 for 203 yards before he runs his throwing hand into the jersey of Jackson Jeffcoat, and that takes him out of the game. Chad Kelly then comes in, goes 4 of 6 for 43 yards, but leads the Argos to the go-ahead touchdown on the other side. And again, we've said this a few times about Zach Kolaris, another pedestrian day. 14 of 23 for 183 and an interception, an interception in that fourth quarter. Dakota Prukop only throws two balls, but he's incomplete on one and picked on the other. That's kind of a perplexing call for the coaches at that point. You've got a, a first-string quarterback in Zach Kolaris who in the playoffs recently, has notoriously not always been strong. The team sometimes stands behind him. He has thrown interceptions. He has turned the ball over. And you bring Dakota Prukop in to make a long pass, and he's cold. It doesn't seem to be the type of risk that you want to take, and it definitely hurt them. At that point, had they marched down the field and even got a field goal, the complexity of this game changes. I believe looking back at this, that there was maybe some miscommunication by the receivers as well. It was an ill-advised pass by Dakota Prukop. But if you look, there are two receivers and two defensive backs all converging on the spot of the ball. That to me indicates that somebody ran a wrong route. I, I don't see how you would draw it up to basically toss it up into that situation and expect success. We do see in the Grey Cup often there are some plays that you've been keeping under wraps for the duration of the season and it's time to pull those out. Had this resulted in a completion by Winnipeg, you're talking about a completely different result in the game, but an ill-advised play and executed poorly by somebody along the way. Greg Ellingson and Rashid Bailey were within five yards of each other. Ellingson coming toward the sideline, Bailey going up the field. You almost wonder if Winnipeg outsmarted themselves. Because typically when Prukop is out there, he's out to run. Twice in the game, he threw a pass. The first one, he missed Dalton Schoen on the sideline badly. And then he underthrew on this interception by Shaq Richardson. Key moments in the game, yes, both times scoring possibilities. For the Argonauts, that meant stops. And that meant keeping them in the game and close. And that seems to be what... The Toronto mantra was, if we can just hang with these guys, then in the fourth quarter, it's anybody's game. And it proved to be that. Now, one other element of this football game that no one's really talked about is that Jackson Jeffcoat goes out of the game with just over 10 minutes to go. It was his ankle, something that has been bothering him all season. Without him, that Winnipeg pass rush disappears. And it also allowed Chad Kelly to scamper for 20 yards on a 
second and long play where he needed to get the first down in order to keep things going. What a story for Chad Kelly. He was designated the backup going into camp. A lot of confidence by him and just biding his time waiting for an opportunity. Anytime he had hit the field earlier on in the season, he seemed to bring a lot of energy and a high level of play. And we saw that coming into a tough situation where the game is on the line. Chad Kelly came in, stepped up four for six, 43 yards and a couple of rushes, including a 20 yard run to keep the play alive. A great performance by him. And did he do enough to get some serious looks from teams that are, are searching for a number one quarterback? I think Chad Kelly is going to take over in Toronto, to be quite honest. You almost sensed when McLeod Bethel Thompson and him were talking after the game, it was like a passing of the guard. McLeod Bethel Thompson, who had hinted that this would be his last season, now that he's got a Grey Cup in his trophy room, that is a fantastic way to leave the game that he's loved so much for so long. Now he can ride off into the sunset. And Chad Kelly, who is the heir apparent in Toronto, is likely now the person that they're going to go forward with. And he certainly, this was his audition. Nobody expected that Toronto would be in this circumstance. And when presented, Chad Kelly stood in. He's from Buffalo as well, which bodes well for Toronto re-signing him just across the border. A lot of ties to the area. So I, with you on that one, I believe if McLeod Bethel Thompson does call it a career, the logical step would be for him to become the starter in Toronto with free agency in the CFL, you never know. We know we do believe there's going to be a lot of changes in quarterback positions in the CFL this offseason. And if he signs early with Toronto, good for them. If not, he might be testing that free agent market a little bit as well. He certainly shone in a big moment. And a lot of quarterbacks, we've seen his head coach who struggled when he got into the Grey Cup and, and just wasn't able to perform through three interceptions. But Chad Kelly showed a lot of poise and confidence, and you could tell that he was really zoned in. As soon as he finished that 20-yard run and took a big lick, he was up looking to the sidelines, ready for the next play. And then he proceeded to make a really nice pass on the next play to, to move the ball into first down territory and give Toronto a shot to run it in from there. Anytime that either team got to within five yards of the goal line, they didn't leave any points off the board. The only time that they did leave a convert off was after the Janarian Grant 102-yard punt return to start the fourth quarter. We'll be talking about block kicks forever in this league, given what happened on two successive series in the final three minutes, where Enoch Muamba picks off Calaris, sets up Toronto to maybe put the game away if they can score a touchdown, but minimally force Winnipeg to score a touchdown to get the field goal. It's blocked by Nick Hallett. And then the circumstance where Robbie Smith gets a sack, then the next play gets a sack and a face mask. Winnipeg gets out of it, throws a pass to Ellingson. They have their chance. Legio again is on the field to make good. He doesn't. Robbie Smith is the one who deflects the ball, as we've accounted. Suddenly, the Argonauts, who were nine points down at one point in that quarter, are sitting on the ball at, deep in their own zone, trying to just run out the clock and win the Grey Cup. 
When you think about that fourth quarter as a whole, so much went into the fourth quarter. We can talk about Chad Kelly. We can talk about, as you did, the injuries that took place to pivotal players on both the offense and defense. And and it was a game in and of itself watching the fourth quarter as as it wound out. I don't know if I can ever recall two missed field goals being blocked in the same game since I've been watching. That's unheard of. If you could have made a bet on that, you'd probably be a millionaire now because I don't think anyone would bet on two field goals in the last five minutes being blocked. In the entire 2022 season leading up to the Grey Cup, there were two field goals blocked. So to have two blocked in the final five minutes of a game is a rarity. Good clean blocks as well. It wasn't uh, any pyramiding or anything that came into question either. They were strong defensive plays and very, very timely. The Argonauts, four quarterback sacks to Winnipeg's two. Winnipeg did not have a sack in the second half. Toronto also had five pass knockdowns to Winnipeg's three. Again, when moments required it, the Argonauts' defense found a way. The second half really started off strong on offense for both teams. Winnipeg did go two and out to start the third quarter. The next drive... Toronto came down the field, scored a touchdown. Winnipeg came right back with a almost eight-minute drive to return the favor and, and score as well. So they really came out trading blows offensively in that third quarter, and then things kind of slowed down a little bit until the last few minutes of the game again. For a fan of either team, the emotional ride that you went on in those final minutes, I imagine for either side would have left a lot of people apoplectic. Is Even as a neutral watching this, it's so unbelievable to see what happened with a block kick at one end and then another one at the other end. One thing I can tell you as a Blue Bombers fan is had they not won the previous two great cups, I would have left this one a lot more disappointed than I was. Uh, it was a, a great environment, a fun experience, they didn't make enough plays at, at the end of the day. Toronto came out and did what they needed to do. I, I left that game very entertained and maybe a little bit disappointed in the end result. I think most fans were highly entertained by this game. The Saskatchewan fans who opted not to come, I'm sure, are kicking themselves if they were watching this at home. This was a game for the ages, and for me, I was so happy to be there and see the events unfold and, and feel the energy and the emotion of the players, the teams, the crowd. It was a phenomenal opportunity to highlight what the CFL does and does well. Final few minutes of any game can be anybody's ball game. And this game highlighted the way the CFL is not really solved until the final moment. It's been long marketed that the final three minutes are almost a separate football game. This Grey Cup proved it. And you're right, this is a Grey Cup for the ages. And this is the thing about the Grey Cup. We have so many classic games that just leave you wanting more. And this is the hard part now as we go into the off season. Third down. There is so much more to a Grey Cup game than the game itself. There is a festival that surrounds the game. And that's something that you guys had an opportunity to partake. What was it like? We live just outside of Regina, so I had the opportunity to go in a couple times with my family, and Heath joined us on, on the Saturday. And my hat's off to the organizers of the Great Cup because I thought they did an outstanding job of engaging fans at, at all levels. When you walked into 
the area where they'd set up all of the different activities. You could do almost anything. You first step in the door and TSN is right beside you and you're seeing the personalities that you're familiar with. But there was all kinds of interactive games. There was a lot of uh, opportunities for, for families to be involved. The CFL had set up in, in the big soccer center in Regina. The fields had all kinds of opportunities for students to work through drills related to football. Some of them were family activities that, that were just engaging to do some axe throwing, to do all kinds of things. And kids were just having a ball. And that's, I think, going to bode well because it's going to bring the next generation in as well, Heath. For sure. There was people of all ages. And we saw the, the kids' area, Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus made a little bit of an appearance for the younger kids. We got an opportunity to climb in the car that Gaynor the Gopher used to rip around Taylor Field in. For the people that are interested in more of the gaming aspect, there was a, an e-gaming tournament with a $50,000 first prize as well. So something that I'm not as familiar with, but we had an opportunity to go watch a few minutes of that. So it brought people that maybe aren't the biggest football fans into the entire Grey Cup atmosphere. We talk about alumni. We saw countless alumni. Andy Fantuz was on the TSN panel. Robert Mims was in the Blue Bombers room. The list of players was was just incredible to bring those guys back. And the the engagement, the approachability with the fans was what really brings home how close-knit the CFL community is. It, it absolutely is. And you could see fans from all over the country dressed in their colors. Um, some of the costumes were outrageous, but the characters are people who come to every great cup and make the festival feel like home, no matter where it is, because we all love the same game. We're all there to enjoy and celebrate the CFL, its players, its traditions. And I just thought that this organizing committee did a fantastic job of making it fun for everyone. If you were there for parties, Ryderville was huge. You could walk in. Uh, I'm told on Saturday night, there were over 20,000 people attending each one of the different venues. And, and we had lots of fun as we walked through some just to check out what different areas gained from the schooners to the Western teams and the Eastern teams were all together. It was just exciting. There were cheerleaders in the building. There was opportunities to dance, to sing, to uh, get behind your team. And, and to me, I, I had a ball. And I know that the people of Regina and Canada who came to the Grey Cup also enjoyed it. One of my big takeaways was you didn't necessarily have to go into the room of which your favorite CFL team was represented. We did manage to pop into each and every one of them, but you saw in the Calgary Stampeders room, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers cheerleaders came out on the dance floor and did a routine. You saw, of course, Riders fans in every room, but no matter which room you were in, there was representation from every team in the league. And the Atlantic Schooners East Coast Party is a really lively room. They have done a phenomenal job of promoting a team that does not even exist yet. And they're had, undefeated, I think was their slogan. Still yes, undefeated. Still undefeated Atlantic Schooners. We walked into that room and we had an opportunity to get our picture taken with the Grey Cup as well. It was not a big to-do. The Grey Cup was sitting in front of a backdrop in the corner of the room and, and anybody could just walk up and pose for a couple of pictures. Uh, a real fun environment. And again, just 
the the closeness and the the sense of community you feel when you're amongst twenty thousand CFL fans in that environment is not much different than being in a in a sold out stadium on game day. The police presence was big there, but the police also tweeted out that there was not one incident where anyone was arrested, and I think that also speaks to. The, the sense of camaraderie that people come in. There was no arguing. People were there for a good time. They celebrated their team. They, they celebrated with fans from other teams. I think it's important for the Canadian identity to have such a great league where people come from all over and celebrate their team, but not just their team, their league. And if we look at macroeconomics, tens of millions of dollars were spent in Regina for Grey Cup week. My takeaway, coming through the gate, turning the corner and seeing the sea of humanity, and this is well over an hour before kickoff, I couldn't get through the crowd to get to my seat. It took me a long time, and that blew me away. Normally on a game day in Regina, you go through the gates, you've got a lot of room, especially if you're early, to walk the concourse and go. Stampeders jerseys, Lions jerseys, Blue Bomber jerseys, Argonaut jerseys, Alouette jerseys. It was just packed with humanity. You're right about the Canadiana about this. This is one of the fabrics that ties us together. It's just something that is so special. Great on Regina for what they did. Great on the Rough Riders for what they did. Great on the CFL. And thank goodness the game matched. We move into the offseason. And of course, immediately coming to mind is free agency, NFL tryouts, rule changes. It's going to be an exciting offseason as it always is. There's lots of conjecture about who's going to be where, who got the tryout in the NFL, are they going to be back with their team, all the free agents and CFL players want to go somewhere where they're going to be able to win. And teams now have this offseason to prove to the players that they're in it to win it. And I like the fact that the teams kind of have to do that. Our players are free to move around. So you've really got to sell people on, come to our organization. We need you so that we can take that next step and we can get to that great cup and you can be successful with us. And and so there's going to be a lot of change. uh, And it starts with the the coaching shuffle, which is happening right now. Um, It's going to be intriguing to see and very exciting to discuss the possibilities. Absolutely. Danny Machocha is in search mode for a new head coach in Montreal already. There are likely some pretty prominent coordinators on some of these teams that are going to get a head coaching look. That starts to change things up, and that also affects how you draw free agents. If you look at a team that has been very successful, how big of a loss is it when one of those coordinators moves on to a head coaching position? Does Bob Dice keep the head coaching position in Ottawa? Or do the Rough Riders need an offensive coordinator? The Tiger Cats are in the Bill Levi Mitchell sweepstakes. There's a lot of moving pieces even before we get to free agency. Should be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by 
Canadian Football League player in game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.